0: Uh, About a month ago, uh, I asked as we finished Colossians or maybe a month and a half ago, uh, if you had further questions, things you'd like to know, maybe I didn't hit upon or didn't answer a question you had uh, to put a a note in the box and we would hit on those after we finished talking through uh, our mission statements. This morning I want to deal with two of those and they really are two sides of the same coin. Uh, There were two different questions. One, does Colossians teach universal salvation, specifically referring to chapter 1, verses 5 and 6? And another question, does Colossians teach that you can lose your salvation? Again, a passage in chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. So since those really are kind of two sides of the same coin, we'll talk about both of those today. So we're going to go back, kind of like at the end of an album, sometimes there's a a song that's, that's... the first song and it's called a reprise so this is Colossians reprise and we're going to be in chapter 1 this morning uh, in a couple of places again uh, 5 and 6 and then uh, 21 through 23 is where we are as we look at those two issues Um, and there are two different issues one I'm going to talk about the universal salvation issue first Um, really is a is an issue between what's orthodox or right teaching and what's wrong teaching. The other issue, whether or not you can lose your salvation. There are people in the body of Christ, orthodox people who disagree on that and have for hundreds of years. Obviously, I'm going to share my opinion and what I think Scripture teaches uh, this morning about that. But, but those really aren't the same issues. Um, I think one is more serious than the other, and we'll talk about that this morning too. Um. So first of all, Colossians 1, 5, and 6. Let me read that, and then we'll talk about that, and then we'll, in a minute, move down to verse 21. Paul says, as he's talking about uh, the gospel, he says, "...because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth." Let me pray and then we'll look at this together. Father, thank You for this morning and for Your Word and for the truth that is in it. And I pray that You would open our hearts and our minds and our ears to to see and to hear and to understand. And ultimately, may we glorify You in our response. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, Paul says, um, in all the world, in verse 6, it, the Gospel, is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. And so the question is, in all the world, is that, does that say that it's, that it's happening with everybody? Well, just grammatically, as, as you're well aware, because something is happening in all the world uh, doesn't mean that it's happening to every person. Right? We, we can say that something's happening in, in every place, but that not every single person is affected by that. And so the, the first thing that I would say is that uh, in all the world doesn't mean that all the world is bearing fruit and increasing That's just the scope. Um, Because it is true that wherever the gospel goes, at some point in time there is success. Because uh, we read in Revelation that uh, there are people from every tribe and language and people and nation. The gospel is successful, but that doesn't mean that every single person responds appropriately. That's the first point. Uh, the second point is some other things that Paul says that help us clarify: Does he really mean that it's every person in every place, or, or just in every place? Notice what he says about the Colossians themselves in verse six, towards the end. He says, "Even as it has been doing in you, this bearing fruit and increasing, since it showed up." No, it says, "Since the day." You heard and understood. See, there's something that has to happen before the Gospel can bear fruit and increase. Someone has to hear. Someone has to grasp the meaning. There's hearing and understanding. And then if we back up even to verse 4, the ultimate issue, Paul says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus... Those are the, the two requirements. When the gospel enters a place, right, people have to hear it and they have to believe it. And if those two things aren't, aren't there, then the gospel is not going to bear fruit. It's not going to increase. Same thing Paul says in Romans 10, right? We, you have to have, people have to hear, so therefore there needs to be a preacher. You, it has to go. People have to hear, and then they've got to respond to that, what they hear. So Colossians um, does not teach universal salvation because, but it does teach the the wonder and the majesty of the gospel. That when it goes into a place, it does bear fruit and it does increase, and that's good news for us. And it's good news for the people around us who don't yet know. It gives us hope. The gospel is power; it's, it's effective. The problem, though, that we run into, especially in places like this, all across the South, really, what we call the, the Bible Belt, is this kind of quasi-universalism, that's what I want to call it. It's exactly the same thing that happened in the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church. See, there was this idea that then back then, the state and the church really were one entity in people's minds. If you were born as a citizen of the empire, then you were a member of the church. And if you were a member of the church, you were going to heaven. Uh, it's kind of like this. If you are a citizen, you are a member of the church. And if you are a member of the church, you're going to heaven. Therefore, if you're a citizen, you're going to heaven. Now, just a just a very easy analogy to follow. And that was how a lot of Europe thought for hundreds of years. And even after the Reformation, when they stressed, no, 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 it's not, it's, not, it's not where you're born or that you're part of a church or that you do these things, it's about faith. Even for 200, 300 years after that, there were still things, and there still are today, things that are called the state church. But I'm part of a culture that is religious, and so therefore, God must love me. And I must be going to heaven. And you know, the South, the United States, is not a whole lot different than that. You can meet people who, have, who were almost born in the church. Their first Sunday alive, they were, they were sitting in a pew somewhere and have been their whole life. And because that's just the culture, it's what I do. I'm part of the church. I, I must be saved, right? I've been here all my life. And I'm a fairly decent individual. I must be a Christian. That quasi-universalism is what we have to deal with more than, as everybody saved, there's there's probably very few people in the U.S., though there are some who think that. But in the South, we deal with that quasi-universalism all the time. And the question for us is, have we believed or have we just been doing church all our life? as we engage with people, as we talk with people that we assume are Christians because they go to church, we need to make sure as we dialogue with them that we're defining terms in the same way that they're defining terms. That, we, that we're that we willing to get to the root of the issue if there's ever even a question in our mind. I wonder if they're a believer. I know they go to church all the time. Are we willing to enter into dialogue with them and, and see why it is they think they're going to heaven? Is it because... I've been in church every Sunday since I was born. Or because they placed their faith in Christ. And that's the issue. So that's the first thing. Uh, universalism. Um, the second thing is does Colossians teach that you can lose your salvation. And we want to turn over, uh, in my Bible it's a page over, and yours it may not be, but verse 21 through 23. Let me read that, and we'll talk about that. Issue for just a moment. Paul writes, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister." We'll talk about that and talk about those terms and break that down because there is that if statement that causes people to go, "Well, no, wait a minute, I thought, I thought God loved us unconditionally. What's that if for? Why is that there? And I know some of you really don't like grammar, but here's where grammar comes in very importantly because we need to kind of break this, this long sentence down and go, what's Paul actually saying? And think about what parts are connected. He begins in 21. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Okay, He's talking about what their life was in the past. And there's an indication that some change has happened. You formerly were like this. Right? You were alienated. You were hostile in mind. You were engaged in evil deeds. But that was formerly, that means something has happened. Okay? So the first thing he's just kind of Here was your condition. Then he goes on, verse 22. Yet He has now reconciled you. Okay, and here's where the grammar comes in. That's the main verb in the sentence. And everything else hinges off that verb, not maybe some of the words that are in between that and something else. Okay? That's the main verb. He has now reconciled you. Next thing in His fleshly body through death, in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. What Paul's doing here is saying how He reconciled you and why He reconciled you. How did He do it? Through His death, the cross. That's how we are reconciled. It's through the blood of Christ that our sins are paid for, the wrath of God is satisfied, and we receive His righteousness. Why does He do that? He does it to present us to His Father holy and blameless and beyond reproach. He does that so that we become a gift to the Heavenly Father. Look, Dad, what I purchased for you. Those people that you have loved and that you sent me to. Then we get to verse 23. If, ah, see, there's the condition, right? Here's, what I've, here's my part. Now, here's what I've got to do, Right? And if I don't do this, maybe not. Let me me read it without the stuff in the middle. He has now reconciled you if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established. What if I changed the wording just a little bit? What if I said, He has not reconciled you if you do not continue in the faith firmly established? See, it's not a, it's not an if, as in you've got to fulfill this, for this to be true. This is true, and the way we know it's true, is if it, you continue in the faith. See, there's there are two terms that we think about all the time when we think about whether you can lose your salvation. One's this term called eternal security, and there's another term called perseverance of the saints. If you define them correctly, they mean the same thing. But I like one better than the other. Eternal security seems to sometimes connote, and some people take it this way, well, if I walk the aisle or said a prayer, then I'm eternally secure and I can do whatever I want to. Because somehow there's this stamp that happened. There's this thing I did, I walked an aisle or I said a prayer and I got a stamp and... It's my get out of hell free card and whatever, right? Life can just go on the way it's always gone on because I'm eternally secure. That's that's a different connotation than perseverance of the saints. The Bible teaches that if you have been saved, you will persevere. That's what Paul's teaching here. He has reconciled you. And the way you know that is if you... Continue in the faith. It's the same thing that John says in First John. We know that they were not of us because they didn't remain with us. Right? They left. They they walked away. And, it, and John's not talking about just walking away for a couple of weeks and getting involved in sin and then repenting and coming back. He's talking about people that have turned their back and, and walked away. Maybe you've heard people. I've heard people say, "I tried Christianity for a while." Well, you can't try Christianity. It's not—it's not like a dish that someone cooks. Can I try something and see if I like it? Right. Either you place your faith in Christ, and you—you, you, as we've talked about, you change allegiance, or you don't. Either you—you you exhibit true faith, or you don't. And so the issue is that people that are saved will continue to walk with Christ. And that doesn't mean that we don't stumble. That doesn't mean that there's this straight line that goes from salvation to glorification that never has any bumps in the road. Sometimes there are bumps in the road. Sometimes we fall away. Sometimes we get involved in sin. Sometimes Christians can even become addicted to sin. But the issue is... Over the course of life, did someone walk the aisle or or say a prayer and then for the next 40 years, until they die, there is nothing? That's the person that I would be concerned about. Not the person like Paul who doesn't do what he wants to do and does what he doesn't want to do. On a regular basis. And then falls on their knees before God and says, God, why am I still doing this? That continual issue of repentance and sin and repentance and restoration and sin and repentance and restoration is not what Paul's talking about. And ultimately, Paul is talking about, when he says in verse 23, if you continue in the faith, right now he's not even talking about actions at all. He's talking about you're continuing in the truth of the gospel. In other words, I've, I've grasped these truths that Christ died for me and, and, and that's who I am. And He's not talking about what we do, how that's lived out. He does talk about that in chapter 3 and chapter 4 in, in great detail. And what He's talking about here is the results of coming to faith in Christ is a man or a woman who perseveres long term who continues to walk, maybe stumbling sometimes, maybe seemingly lost sometimes. I don't know what to do. I can't get over this sin. But it's it's the one who, as we look at their life long term, there's perseverance. It's not the one who's lackadaisical and, oh yeah, I've got security. I'll do what I want to. And they have left not only the church, but left the faith. The truth that, that God loves us enough to save us, but also loves His creation enough to use us. And people use lots of verses in the Bible to argue both sides of, of that issue. That you can lose your salvation or you can't lose your salvation. Or you can lose it and get it back. Or, or, well, that person lost their salvation versus, oh, that person was never a Christian to begin with. And we argue about semantics and stuff. The issue for me, though, comes down more to the character of God. And I want to look at a passage that we've looked at before in here uh, right after we arrived back in 2010. And some of you weren't here for that. Because the issue comes down not so much to, I can pick a verse that I think proves this or that, but what, is, what does God's character say about when he, when he makes a promise? When God says, I'm going to do this, what does His character say to us about whether we can trust that or not? Whether we can depend upon that or not? You're familiar with a man named Abraham. You know Abraham. He was the guy that uh, before God called him, he married his half-sister. I don't know in that culture whether that was a good or a bad thing or not. I'm not sure. The Bible doesn't say. But then God shows up and said, Abraham, I've got a deal for you. Go to this place I'm going to show you, and I'm going to give you lots of kids, lots of land, and I'm going to bless you. And Abraham says, okay, sounds good. And so we travel several hundred miles to this place we call the Promised Land, modern-day Israel, and he sets up shop there. Doesn't own a stitch of dirt, but he went all that way seemingly in belief. And there was a famine. Famine. He didn't like that very much, and and I don't know if he consulted God or not, but he decided, um, this isn't going to work, and he he heads south to Egypt. while he's in Egypt, he looks at his wife and thinks, she's a looker, and I don't want people killing me and taking her, so let's remind people, dear, that you are my sister. Sort of true, right? But let's forget about the wife thing. That way, someone won't kill me and take you. That's a loving husband, isn't it? Right? I'm willing to sacrifice you. They they may take you, but at least I'll be safe, right? If we we think about that just a little bit, God promised lots of kids. If you're dead, can you have kids? I mean, if God knew, I mean, if Abraham knew about God at this point in time, he he would have said, God's trustworthy, I'm not going to die. But He didn't. Well, that all gets worked out and they come back to the promised land with with stuff. And then something rather interesting happens in in chapter 15. And uh, if you want to turn back there with me this morning as we look at God's character. Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I'm a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. Abram understands that what he's talking about is kids because he says, O oh Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And then he says, this guy who's one of my servants is going to be my heir. I don't have any kids, God. How is that a great reward? Right? My servant's going to get all my stuff. I can't pass it on to someone else. Verse 4, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And God took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. See, and, we weren't, and they're not in Dallas, Texas, or Atlanta at this point in time, right? They're out in the middle of nowhere, There are no street lamps. It's kind of like if you get out far enough here and you look up, right? Can you count them? You can't, right? There's no way. And God said, so shall your descendants be. And then we read that great verse, then he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. God revealed truth to Abraham. Abraham believed that truth, that revelation. And God said, because of your belief, not because you're a lousy husband, not because you're willing to sacrifice your wife's good for your good, but because you believed, I'm going to credit to your account righteousness. You're not righteous, Abram. But I'm going to credit to your account righteousness because of belief. And everything that happens after that, we have to remember, happens after that. Abram has believed and he's been credited with righteousness. Okay? And then God continues talking. And He said, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. And then Abram's got a question. Okay, how am I going to know that I'm going to possess it? I don't own anything yet. God, can you can you give me some clue? We've been doing this. You're going to have, you're going to have, you're going to have. And I believe you, but can you can you make it a little more clear? And God says, yeah, I can. In fact, I've got this contract I want you to sign. And he pulls the contract out of his pocket. And there's, there's, there's a place for two signatures. And he... He gives it to Abraham. What he really does is he said, Abraham, get some animals and cut them in half and lay them side by side. And what Abraham knew was happening was they were fixing to sign a contract. It would be like today, someone giving you a piece of paper, but back then you'd cut an animal in half and then the two of you would walk between the pieces. And the fine print at the bottom of that contract said, If I break my end of the bargain, what happened to these animals is going to happen to me. It's a serious issue. Yeah, ooh, that's exactly right. This isn't just, well, if you don't pay your mortgage, I'm going to take your house, right? Or I'm going to repossess your car. If you don't hold up your end of the bargain, then the issue is death. Abraham understood that. Now, what we also notice is God doesn't tell Abraham what his end of the bargain is yet. (laughs) How would you like God to show up and say, I want you to sign this contract and there's a big blank space under your duties, right? But you've got to sign it. Would that make you nervous? I wonder what God's going to fill. What is God going to put in the blank? I mean, what if he put something just as simple as love your wife? (laughs) I failed that. Maybe I can do that from now on. Maybe. Verse 12. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness. Yeah, I'd be afraid too. (laughs) I don't like the way this is shaping up at this point in time. And God said to Abram in verse 13, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. They will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. And then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Okay, we know God's end of the bargain. You're going to have lots of kids... They're going to be enslaved, but I'm going to free them from slavery 400 years later. That's a long promise. Okay, God, what's my end of the bargain? And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. See, Abram's over here sitting on the side watching this. And this smoking pot and this flaming torch walk between the pieces. And Abraham's going, I don't have to sign? Well, what is that? What's interesting is that 400 years later, when these descendants of Abraham were leaving the promised land, what was, what was leading them was this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire. This smoke and this fire. And if you don't think Moses and the rest of the folks knew this story, then you're mistaken. They knew the promises. And lo and behold, here's this same image magnified a whole lot of, of smoke and fire leading them just like smoke and fire walked through those pieces. That was God. And God said, Abraham, we're going to make a contract, but you don't have to sign anything. I'm the only one signing my name. Isn't God taking a risk here? I mean, what if Abraham turns out to be a rascal? Oh, wait, let's see. In the next chapter, he commits adultery to try to solve the problem of no kids. And then a few chapters later, he lies about his wife again to try to save his own hide because now he's got kids, so it's okay. And then his descendants. Isaac turns out to be a buffoon. Jacob is someone I would never want to do business with. He would would cheat anything out of you if he could. And on and on and on and on. His descendants are, are scoundrels. There's a few bright spots. Joseph was kind of a... Uh, he started out poorly, but he turned out to be a pretty, pretty decent guy. But the rest of them... See, God made the promise after Abraham exhibited faith. And God unconditionally promised, here's what I'm going to do. And it doesn't matter what you do. Part of God's character, part of why I believe when when you exhibit real faith, a faith that will persevere, and as we read in Ephesians, God seals you with His Holy Spirit. The reason that you're secure is because God is the one who doesn't break His promise even if we do. Even if He doesn't require anything of us. Now, we read in the New Testament that God really, really does want us to live a life that pleases Him. But His character exhibited from beginning to end is a God who keeps His promises. And His promise is, if you exhibit real faith... In the revelation that He has given us, that revelation we call the good news of the gospel, which Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15 as Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Those, those three things. We have sin. <laughs> we need something, right? That's, that's been revealed to us. We acknowledge that. We put our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is payment for those sins as we've talked about before. That, that changing of allegiance from I can do this, from taking yourself off the throne and putting God on the throne. When you do that, when that faith happens, God seals you with His Spirit. Once again, God puts Himself on the line and walks through the pieces and says, here's what I'm going to do. As Paul says in Philippians 1. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Yeah, but what if I, what if I, what if I screw up? What if I, what if I don't do what He asked me to do every single time? Well, the good news is it's not really about you. Ultimately, the good news of the Gospel is, is that God is a God who keeps His promises. So the question is, so what? So what does it matter if, if there's not universal salvation? And what does it matter if you can't lose your salvation? What does that have to do with me today when I walk out these doors in an hour or so? Well, the first one, if, if, if there's no such thing as universal salvation, then there are people out there who need to hear the gospel. They need to know the truth that you know. They need to understand that there is a God who is consistent and keeps His promise and loves them and has died for them. They need to know that truth. So the very practical application of there not being universal salvation is that you and I have a task set before us as image bearers to to be light to the world. The other very practical application of if we can't lose that, then what fear do we have of messing up? See, it's sometimes think about it backwards. Think, well, if I can't lose my salvation, then it doesn't matter what I do. The way Christians should think about that is, if I can't lose my salvation, then I really can't. I can't louse it up when I share the gospel with someone. I can't. I can't make God so mad because I fumbled through it the wrong way. I can't turn Him off to ever using me again if if I mess it up. We don't fear death. We don't even fear sin anymore. It gives us boldness and confidence to walk into a world that needs us to share the good news. And that's why those two doctrines, I think, are important for us to grasp. There's a world that needs us, and we have a wonderful gift inside us that is welling up to eternal life for those that we come in contact with. And so let me challenge you, let me encourage you, as you spend time this week thinking and praying through this, God, what would you have me do? Is there someone that you've brought across my path that that, that I need to... Engage in conversation to see if there may be just a cultural Christian. Or maybe someone who's just out and out doesn't know who you are that I need to begin to build a relationship with that I might have an opportunity to be light to them. That's what God is calling us to do as a body and as individuals. Would you pray with me please? And then we're going to sing one more song. Father, thank You for Your Word and for um, for Your example, ultimately, of who You are. Faithful and committed, long-suffering, putting up with us when we are not worth putting up with. God, we ask through the power of Your Spirit that You would change us and that You would make us into the people that You have called us to be, for Your glory and for the good of of the places where we live. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.